I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We, uh, we are in a nation, I think, that is safe to say is founded on the basic concept of individual rights, of, of protection of those rights. Ever really since the, uh, since the Magna Carta in 1215, that has been a part of of uh, our society, going back that far, and of course in the Bill of Rights in England in 1689 and 100 years later in our own American Bill of Rights, that has been, uh, that has sort of been solidified for us, this idea that we have rights which are to be protected, individual rights, and, and certain uh, statutes of fairness that go into society. All of that has been set as the expectation in our society and and of course none of that is wrong none of that is illegitimate it's all based in in sound biblical truth but the problem all along ever since that notion has been codified in these various documents the problem all along is that no matter what our ideals may be, we continue to live in an unrighteous society, in an unrighteous world. We're surrounded by things all the time which are dishonest and unethical and wicked and immoral all the time. And when people encounter that, they often are too ill-equipped to know how to handle it. Today, uh, it seems more than ever the church is ill-equipped for those kinds of issues. There is maybe no time in the recent history of the church when there's been so much dialogue on issues of justice and injustice and equality and, and all of those things. But it's questionable, I think, whether the church has what it takes to really respond to issues of unfairness and respond to issues of inequality or unrighteousness or whatever it might be that they face day in and day out. All of this really is a direct reflection, I believe, on a weak understanding of God and of the gospel. Not that anyone would deny God in his essential justice, any Christian would understand at a rudimentary level that God must be just, but the way that that justice works itself out in your life and my life on a day in and day out basis is misunderstood. Or to say it in a different manner, the way God uses unfairness, hatred, Injustice, inequality, malice, cruelty, evil, whatever it might be, the way God uses all of that stuff within his system of justice is not well understood by Christians today. Consequently, the church is ill equipped to help one another through these times of difficulty, and the church is ill equipped to navigate through a world of unrighteousness that we live in every day. Well, today, we have an opportunity to listen in on a word of encouragement from the Apostle Paul to a group of people who were oppressed, who were facing injustice, who were facing cruelty, who were facing malice and hatred from a world all around them. And Paul, Paul offers 
them his words of insight. What he really offers is, first of all, thanksgiving for the way that they're responding to all that, but then also encouragement for them to continue in that response which glorifies God. But his counsel is not what most people would expect, or at least it's not what most people are saying to one another in the face of injustice, in the face of of difficulty today when they when they're surrounded by evil these are not the kinds of words that you typically hear from one christian to another but we find these profound words which are grounded not only in in this passage of scripture but they're grounded in paul's own experience and more importantly they're grounded in the very life and message of christ and we find them here in this, this prayer that we've been looking at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, a prayer which really runs from verse 3 all the way down to verse 12, one big long sentence with a series of subordinating clauses and subordinating phrases, which all stem out of the main idea in verse 3, where Paul says, we ought to give thanks for you. So this is really one, one big thanksgiving and one big explanation of why Paul is thankful for them, particularly in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, of persecution and affliction that's coming to them. And so Paul gives that, that note of thanksgiving and then he moves really into what you might think of as an extended discourse or a series of branches that, that extend out from that that main trunk of thought in terms of his thanksgiving. And if you wanted to sort of summarize it all, you would summarize it as that thanksgiving for their endurance in the face of trial. But as Paul peels back the surface from that, what he really begins to get into is is the source of where that kind of endurance comes from. The source, the, the energizing force from which that endurance flows. And for that, you could summarize the source of their endurance as ultimately the justice of God, which in the end will be expressed in the final judgment at the return of Christ. Listen to the way Paul says it, and we'll begin really in verse 4, although our main focus is going to be in verses 5 through 10. We're going to begin in verse 4 just to get the, the context of what he's saying here. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Afflicting, excuse me, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. 
Now, there's a lot, a lot that's packed into all of those various phrases that Paul just uh, piles on there, one after another. And it would be somewhat easy to get lost in the details and forget the big picture of what this is all about, which is really Paul's thankfulness for their endurance. But as he adds to that expression of thanksgiving, what he's really offering to us is a is something of a way to understand that endurance, a way to understand that steadfastness. He offers us a way, really, to understand how God is using present suffering, present affliction, and their endurance through it in order to accomplish His purposes in eternity. Paul wanted them to understand that. Because he understood that it would be vital for them in the long term to not waver in their endurance. To energize their endurance, if you will. And in essence, what Paul is doing is is really framing correctly their understanding of God by helping them understand the way His justice works. That not only includes the way His justice works at the end when Christ ultimately comes to pour out His vengeance on those who do not know Him, but it's understanding even now the way that justice is at work, even in their present experience. And we can all rejoice in the fact that God's going to bring about uh, salvation for those who believe and, and correct and right all the wrongs in the world, but that doesn't necessarily do a whole lot for us right now in our present experience. But Paul wants them to understand the way God's justice is working right now in the world of today. He understands there's always a temptation when you face injustice, when you face inequality, when you face malice, when you face you know, power and arrogance and all those other things. He understood, as well as anyone, there's always a temptation for them to believe that God's justice is not working. Or perhaps to think that God's justice is slow or delayed, or if not really delayed, maybe just sort of weak or maybe even blind, as some of the psalmists would have complained from time to time. But what Paul tells them here is that God's justice isn't delayed. It's just a process. And they need to understand the way the process is working. And the way that it's working in their life, in their very real suffering right now. This really becomes an explanation then of the justice of God. And And you can see it in verses 5 and 6, how he just repeats this. God's judgment is righteous. God considers it just. All of this God is doing to validate and to prove His justice. And it may not always appear that way in your present circumstances, but Paul demonstrates an unshakable faith in that. And it came with a profound understanding of the way God's justice is at work. And when we put it all together, I think what we find here really are three facts that you have to understand about God's justice if you're going to ever actually be energized 
for endurance in your trials. Three, three uh, processes, or we might say three facts that you must understand about God's justice if you're ever going to be energized in your endurance for trials. The first one, really the only one that we'll have time to look at this morning, is in verses 5 through 7. And that's the fact that their endurance gives evidence for God's justice. Their endurance gives evidence for God's justice. When Paul says in verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That word, this, refers back to verse 4 to the steadfastness and faith that they were showing in their persecutions and in the afflictions they were enduring. So in other words, their endurance is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It's the evidence that God's judgment is right, that it's just. Now when you read that, you ought to ask yourself the question, how is my suffering evidence that God's justice is right? I mean, if anything, the... the, the the more common response is to look at whatever you're suffering and to look at whatever people are afflicting you with and to begin to assume that God's judgment isn't right. That you're trying to do the right thing, that you're trying to live an upright life, that you're trying to be a law-abiding citizen and and trying to be a, a merciful person, you're trying to work out the gospel in your life every day, and yet people, rather than acknowledging that, being grateful for that, they have a tendency to want to take advantage of that kind of kindness and want to, to impose on you all of their own uh, selfish pursuits and, and run you over or whatever it might be. They have, they have all the tendency to do that all the time. And you and I have experienced that in life. And so in the midst of whatever you're going through, whatever kind of affliction you're going through, you might be actually thinking that this is not the evidence that everything is just. You might be thinking, no, this is the evidence that something is wrong. Something is fundamentally wrong. It's wrong Maybe in society, it's wrong in a civil way, it's wrong in a governmental way, it's wrong in a moral way, maybe it's wrong in in a universal way. There's something wrong when good people, or at least people who are trying their best to be good, are being afflicted in this way. But Paul says, actually, your endurance... Bearing up under injustice is actually evidence of God's just judgment. How can that be? How can we reconcile that? I mean, so many people who look at the injustices of the world, they even see somewhat innocent folks suffering and they conclude that there can't be a God There can't be a God if He's allowing these kinds of injustices. 
How can Paul say this? Well, he goes on to explain it in two separate ways. First, as it pertains to believers, their faithful endurance and suffering provides evidence, he says in verse 5, that they may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they are suffering. So he defines really particularly here the kind of suffering he's talking about, the kind of suffering for the kingdom of God. And this is evidence, as New King James says it, evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. In other words, the suffering provides evidence that they are worthy. The suffering provides evidence that they are worthy or should be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, pay close attention. Paul is not saying that the suffering makes you worthy. Don't confuse what he's saying here. He's not saying that this is the source of their worthiness. It's not the basis of their worthiness. You can't make yourself worthy of God's kingdom by enduring a certain amount of suffering. That is the mistake many people have made through the years. You do something bad, you do something sinful, and you assume that somehow you've got to make up for it by suffering in some way. This is the whole idea behind the fallacious notion of penance. Where people would go out and in order to make up for their sins, they would inflict pain on themselves or they would subject themselves to pain or they would go to some difficult circumstance or take on some difficult task in order to make themselves worthy, to make up for what they did wrong. Listen, there's no amount of suffering that you could ever endure that would have the power to pay the penalty for your sin. A lifetime of suffering, an eternity of suffering can never ever do that. You have no way of paying the penalty for your sin. There's nothing that you can do that could ever make up for all the ways that you violated God's law, all the ways you spurned Him and turned against Him. There's nothing that you could ever do. For, for those who think it's religious offerings and sacrifices, the book of Hebrews says that those offerings can never take away the sins of the one who offers them. Or whether it's some law or some deed or the performance of some act, Paul says in Galatians, those things cannot give eternal life to the one who has sinned. But as the book of Hebrews says, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's the only thing that can make you worthy of God's kingdom. The only thing. That's the only thing that can ever wipe away all of your sins. It's the offering up of Christ's body to, to take all of God's wrath, to take all of the punishment, to absorb all of God's vengeance against you. And when you place your, your faith and your trust in Christ, you receive 
that absolution, the absolving of your guilt, the forgiveness of your sins. And consequently, the door opens for you to have eternal life. That's what makes you worthy. But what Paul's talking about is not what makes you worthy. What he's talking about is what proves that you're worthy. What he's talking about is the evidence that that kind of thing has taken place in your heart. Because what he's talking about here is your willingness to suffer for that truth of the gospel. He's talking about the thing which gives evidence of your worthiness to enter into the kingdom of God. It's kind of like a birth certificate. You know, a birth certificate doesn't make you the child of your parents. What makes you the child of your parents is a natural process or maybe even a legal adoption. The birth certificate just serves as a piece of evidence that you belong to that family, to those people. Well, what Paul's talking about here is the kind of evidence that, that proves that you belong to God's family. It proves that you are one of those who have been made worthy by Christ's sacrifice. He, he's talking about what gives evidence of that. And he's saying that part of that evidence is your faithful endurance of suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, this is very similar to what Paul told believers in Lystra. In Iconium, Acts 14, when he was encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. He understood that if you embrace Christ, you embrace a pathway of suffering. Your faith is going to be tested. Your faith is going to be tried. And it's going to have the opportunity to be demonstrated through these trials. Or as he writes to the Romans, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. See, this pathway of suffering, it's inextricably linked to the gospel call. It is fundamental to the gospel call. Jesus says that in Mark 8, 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying, look, there's an unavoidable link between following me And suffering. An unavoidable link. You must take up your cross and follow him. You must be willing to give up your life if you ever want to find true life. You must be willing to suffer 
whatever is necessary. You must be willing to bear the scorn of my name, Jesus says. And if you're not willing to bear the scorn of my name among your peers, then you're not worthy of me. Well, Paul is saying it's that willingness to bear the scorn of the name of Christ which gives the evidence that you are worthy to enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't make you worthy, it just gives the evidence. The evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you would be considered worthy when God admits you into his kingdom for which you are suffering. When God comes, as he says down in verse 7, to grant relief to you and, and Paul says to us as well. He's speaking out of own, his own personal experience. This isn't sort of pontificating from the comforts of some, some ivory tower. Paul is speaking to them as one who suffered. When God comes to provide relief for you and for me and reward for you and for me, your suffering for the sake of His name is going to be the evidence that He's giving His grace to the right people when He admits them into the kingdom of God. That's what your suffering is accomplishing. Right now, that's what it's doing. It is building your credentials and it's preparing the way for God's justice to be declared right. Another way to say that is it's preparing the way for God's name to be glorified. For God's justice to be declared right in the end is for people to glorify God's justice, to glorify God. So your endurance right now is validating His judgment in the day to come. It is making it evident that His judgment and His decision is the right decision when He admits you into the kingdom of God. That's what it's accomplishing. You say, well, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want, it to, I don't want to go down the pathway of suffering. I just want him to make it all right right now. Well, that's not the deal that Jesus offered to you. By the way, it's not the deal that Jesus took. He walked down a pathway of rejection. He walked down a pathway of affliction. He walked down a pathway of insult. And he ordained it. That you would walk down that same pathway that you would take up your cross and follow him. Why? Not because he's into useless suffering. But because he knew that your willingness to do that is going to glorify him and his justice in the end. Well, that's just one half of the equation. Because the other half, Paul gets to in verse 6. The other half relates to those who are inflicting this pain and suffering. And he addresses them there in verse 6, continuing his defense of the righteous judgment of God, continuing to help them to understand the role that their suffering is playing in in the just judgment of God and connecting this with the overall purpose. He wants to encourage them. And he does it by addressing those who are causing the pain and and suffering in verse 6. Since, he says, indeed, God considers it just To repay with affliction those who afflict you. 
This is just a further explanation of this evidence that's being produced right now in your suffering. It's a further explanation of how Paul can say that your faithful endurance and suffering is evidence for God's righteous judgment. Because your present suffering is going to provide evidence in the end because it will be the grounds on which God repays with affliction those who afflict you. In other words, the things you're suffering right now are going to stand as evidence that God's verdict against those that He punishes is not arbitrary, it's not capricious. It's going to demonstrate that God's judgment is in complete harmony with the highest standards of what is right and what is just. Because not one act of injustice, not one act of affliction will go unpunished. And the way God is doing this, Paul is telling us, Is by taking note of all the ways that you are afflicted. By logging and recording the affliction and the trouble being given to you. So that he can repay those who afflict you with affliction. Repay those who give it with affliction in the same way. In this sense God is building his case against them. Or more to the point, he's allowing those who afflict you to prove out their own character. We sometimes say this just in sort of a colloquial way, right? When we, when we sort of smell a, a skunk or we know something's not right, we sometimes talk about giving someone enough rope to hang themselves. Well, God is doing that. And Paul's point is all of this is operating in a system of God's justice, in his just justice, because God considers it just, or more like, more literally, it just simply says, with God, it is just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. There really is no verb in this, in this passage, no main verb anyway. It's just the fact that this is just the way it is with God. There is just a system of justice, a divine system of justice which is at work, a divine system that is ordained and controlled by a sovereign God, and that God has this absolute system of justice where every sin must be paid for and none of them will be passed over. The very gospel that we preach is firmly based on this idea. That wherever sin and evil occurs, it must be paid for. God cannot tolerate. You say, well, I thought God was forgiving. I thought that God overlooks sin. Well, He is forgiving. But no sin is ultimately overlooked. No sin is ever unpunished. People lose sight of that because they all ever want to talk about is this God who is lenient and loving and tolerant and forgiving. They lose sight because they never really want to talk about a God who judges and a God who repays and a God who 
deals out retribution. They never want to think about God's wrath and His vengeance. But He is a God of wrath. And He doesn't overlook evil. In fact, if God were to overlook evil, even on the supposed basis that He is just loving and forgiving and and that He just wants to show people kindness, if God were to do that, He would not be a God who is worthy of your worship. The kind of God who's willing to overlook issues of injustice is not a God who's worthy of your worship. Any more than a God who would overlook your own sin. He suddenly becomes a God who is unfair, unright, uneven, arbitrary in his dealing with others. But listen, this is the beauty of the cross. Because God's not just a lover who kindly overlooks sins. He is a firm distributor of justice who was willing to crush his own son as a punishment for sins of those who trust in him. So sins are dealt with justly on the cross as Christ, as I said earlier, absorbs the retribution against Your sin and mine if you trust in Christ. The cross demonstrates how seriously God takes justice. And if you don't trust in Christ, all of God's wrath, all of the vengeance which was on display in the cross, that was poured out on His own Son, all of that vengeance which is against sin is bound To be poured out on you. It's bound to be suffered by you. Because no sin will be overlooked. Every act of of disdain for God. Every act of disobedience toward Him. And every affliction with which you afflict other people. Every affliction with which anyone afflicts you, all of those things are going to be repaid, he says. Paul understood that. He understood that we serve a God whose justice is right. And in a world where the church no longer clearly sounds the message of God's wrath or the message of God's justice... When they faced issues of injustice, it could become very confusing for the average believer. They look at whatever situation they're in and they see all of the inequities that are involved and they begin to question God's goodness and they begin to question God's justice. They begin to speak about people getting away with things as if anyone ever gets away with something. Or they they begin to think that somehow justice is being avoided or dodged because the, the, the faulty systems of justice that are around them in society are not upholding what they think ought to be upheld. 
And they begin to lose their, their sense of trust in the Lord and a fairness in His system. All of this really happens whenever believers begin to lose their sense of the world to come and they're tempted to take matters into their own hands. They're tempted to question God and question His fairness. But Paul didn't look at it that way at all. Remember, he was a victim. This is the voice of a victim. He was the one who had been run out of Thessalonica based on a bunch of false accusations against his character and against his motives. A group of religious leaders, no less, who banded together against Paul and against the Christians. They gathered up some of the wicked men of the rabble, we're told in Acts 17, and they stirred up a riot and then pinned the blame on Paul. All of this was brought before the court system, but the courts were unjust. And so rather than finding the actual perpetrators, they blamed the victim. And they they forced the members of the church to take out a financial pledge, a bond, if you will, guaranteeing that no such uh, riot would erupt in the future. Here the religious leaders thought that they had the church in a bind because they would just go out and create another riot. They would pin the blame on Paul one more time and then all the Christians would be ruined financially. They would turn on Paul and on each other and the whole movement would die. But the, the Christians, understanding the plot and the scheme, secretly send Paul away under the dark of night. How in the world can that be just? How in the world can people get away with that? And how in the world can Paul turn around and say, I thank God. I actually thank God for the suffering. I thank God for your endurance in it because it's evidence. It's evidence of the genuineness of your faith in the sense that you don't retaliate. You just suffer and suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's evidence against these people. Paul understood injustice and what it is for powerful people to threaten and intimidate and persecute. And yet he trusted That God's system was not just some ideal, but it was currently at work. Because he understood the way the Lord was working. He understood that these sufferings were at work, producing evidence of his faith and the faith of these believers. And he also understood that the wicked deeds of those who are afflicting you was at work, creating evidence against them and for the righteous judgment of God. It was building an inventory, a record of infringement, a record of malice, a record of wrongdoings that God is going to pay back to everyone who perpetrates it. And both sides of that equation are necessary. If you have your Bibles, in fact, look with me for a moment over at John 15 for really some of the most profound words of encouragement That you'll find anywhere in the pages of scripture when it comes to suffering. John 15. 
This is, of course, Jesus' discourse with his disciples as he is explaining to them how things are going to go when he departs. And he tells them in these poignant words, John 15, in verse, beginning in verse 18, he tells them, begins to talk to them about evil and affliction that they're going to face in the world, and he connects it in a profound way to the affliction that he faced. And I want you to listen to the way that he frames it in the context of his suffering and the evidence of the guilt of the ones who afflicted him. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But... All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now... They have seen and have hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Here is the definition of injustice. They hated Christ without a cause. They hated an innocent man. And yet how does he understand all of this? How does he respond to all of this? He simply says that it all had to take place so that they would have guilt. He's not saying, whenever he says that that if I had not spoken to them or if I had not done the works that I did, they would have no sin. He's not talking about no sin at all as if somehow these were completely innocent people. What he's saying is that their sin would have been more hidden. It would have been hidden behind a religious facade. But when Christ came and he spoke the truth to them and he did works of kindness among them and he demonstrated the kind of character that he demonstrated, when he did all of that, they not only expose themselves as those who do not really love God or His law, but they actually added to their culpability. They added to their guilt by assaulting Christ. So on the surface, you might conclude that an innocent man is being dealt with unjustly here and that God's system of justice is not at work. But if you have spiritual discernment, then you understand how all of this is working. That God was using all of it, building up the evidence, cataloging the deeds, recording the words that were hurled against Christ. And they will pay. They will pay. 
That's the way God's using suffering. It's the way he works out his justice in the midst of injustice. It's the way all these things were viewed by Christ. It's the way that Paul viewed his own suffering. And it's the way that he wanted these Thessalonians to view theirs. So that they would actually be energized. So they would actually be empowered for their endurance through the midst of it. He was thankful, he says. I ought to give thanks already. Because you've already shown endurance. You've already proven your, your character. You've already proven your faith by your endurance so far. But he wanted them to have the full resources for whatever lied ahead. And he knew the days of temptation would come when they would grow weary and they'd be tempted to question the rightness of God's judgment. He wanted them to understand the way it works. The way it works. You know, for most of you, this ought to be a cause for strength. It ought to be a cause for hope. It ought to be a cause for encouragement and endurance, no matter what you're facing, no matter what's going on at work or at school, in your family, in your neighborhood, among your peers. For some of you, it ought to be an encouragement that you can, you can actually stand for what is right. You can stand for the name of Christ. You can stand for righteousness. And as you do that, it's, it's providing the evidence. It's validating God's work in you. And in the end, it will bring glory to His name at His coming. Even as it brings glory now. For some of you, all of this ought to be a cause of fear. It ought to be a warning. You mock and degrade those who try to live their lives to the glory of God. You side with the world over and over again against God's people. Some of you spouses side with the world against your husband or wife who are trying to walk with God. Some of you children side with the world against your parents who are trying to call you to faithfulness. Some of you side with the world around your peers at work when there's someone trying to live out their faith and you don't want to be mocked alongside of them and so you, you go at them along with everyone else. You side with the world against God's people and against God's word. But God is not mocked. He is storing up wrath for the day of wrath. He will repay every scornful word, every act of disrespect and contempt, every every attempt to afflict God's people. He will repay it, which means you will pay. For all eternity, for your hatred of God and of His things, you will pay unless you repent and bow your knee to Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And all the penalty against all your sins, all your rebellion, He will lay on Christ. You'll be forgiven You'll be given life. 
You'll be given forgiveness in eternity. Take up your cross and follow him, Jesus says. And he will take you as his own. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, these are your words. They're words that were intended to weigh on the heart and mind of everyone who doesn't believe. They're words that bring joy to us who know you because our sins have been forgiven. And we're as willing today as we ever were to stand with you. To take the hatred of the world with you. If it would glorify your name and prove our love for you. Lord, we're so thankful that we can do something that will bring glory to your name. We're so thankful that we can do something to give evidence, to be the vehicles of your just and righteous work. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us endurance in the midst of affliction, in the midst of scorn. Give us endurance, knowing that your name will ultimately be glorified through it all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.